going on? If you guys have Bibles with you, you can turn to Luke chapter 19. We're going to be finishing that chapter today. Good Lord willing, and if we don't rise. Beginning in verse 41. And when he, Jesus, drew near and saw the city, Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Let's pray. Father, your word speaks to us today as it has throughout the ages, Lord, and I know how unequal I am to the task of handling this text or any other, Lord, and we will not have eyes to see it and what you have to say to us without your spirit doing a work in us. So we pray that you would be with us here now. Illuminate your word for our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Uh, I was told in high school English class that you're supposed to write your essay first and then title it later because you don't know what title is going to fit it until it's written. And I never do what my teachers say. Uh, a couple people around here can probably vouch for that. I, I was homeschooled under some of your tutelage. Uh, but I thought a nifty title to build the sermon around was The Passions of the Christ. See, that's clever because it's not passion, but passions, you know, plural. And so it's like the Mel Gibson movie, but you know, different. <laughs> uh, I cracked myself up. But seriously, uh, this must be one of the biggest emotional roller coaster scenes in scripture. We saw last week the triumphal entry, which marked perhaps the high point of Jesus' popularity. He knows he's come to die, but today the people were reveling. Uh, And he seems to join in the fun and the celebration. He rebukes the guys who are trying to throw water on the party, because the Pharisees were nothing if not party poopers. And Jesus puts them in their place, and he says there's no stopping this party. But then... No sooner does Jesus insist the party must go on, he starts crying. Could anything be less fitting to the scene? Uh, Leslie Gore said, it's my party and I'll cry if I want to, but I don't like to put her words in Jesus' mouth. Uh, I like to think he's better than teenage pop music. But, you know, when I think of King Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, I think of him as a pretty cool customer. You know, this is like seeing James Bond cry. Now, Bond does cry in one or two films, but I think we all know those aren't really legitimate Bond movies. Um, And you know for sure that Sean Connery never cried as James Bond. He leaves that to the Timothy Daltons and such. But I digress. Uh, The point is, 
that Jesus does not cry all that often. We have two instances recorded in all of Scripture, and this is one of them. And it strangely comes on the heels of such joy. Uh, Then, once he reaches the center of town at the temple, he throws an epic fit because he's royally PO'd and not afraid to show it. And this episode is recorded in Mark with greater detail that he didn't just drive out the salesman. Mark says that he overturned tables, seats, and generally stopped traffic of everything through the temple. And John records what may be a different incident, but certainly related. Uh, Jesus does clear the temple early in his ministry, except John adds an interesting element, the whip. John says Jesus actually took the time to make a whip and proceeded to use it as a threat, maybe, or maybe he really swung that bad boy. We don't really know. Uh, Luke seems mostly concerned to show us that it happened. Uh, He gives less detail. It's recounted sort of briefly here. Uh, But he still says he drove them out, which sort of implies that maybe a whip-like implement was used. Uh, The impression Luke leaves us is that this has been a really up-and-down day for Jesus, emotionally speaking. Uh, The picture of Jesus is one of emotional turmoil and volatility. Uh, Not that he's ever out of control, mind you, but the range of emotion is fairly comprehensive. Now, most of us remember sometime in childhood when we saw our parents have an emotional day or moment. And it can be scary as a kid because you're used to your parents being steady. And if you come in and see them crying or breaking things, uh, it's unsettling. And the normal response for me when I was a kid and saw such a thing was I steer clear of them. Um, I'm blessed with at least one or two kids that when they see me doing those kind of things have the impulse to hug me. But I'll bet the disciples are feeling a little bit more like uh, I did as a kid. Uh, They're watching Jesus get emotional and then angry, and these scenes would have made a lasting impression on them, and I guess it should make some sort of impression on us. Otherwise, it wouldn't be in here. But the operative question is not, did Jesus experience emotions? Because good theology states that Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. Uh, This means he experienced the whole range of human emotion, Thus, there should be no question there. The operative question is why. Why did Jesus experience these particular emotions? Or maybe better stated, what makes Jesus cry and what makes Jesus angry? If we're seeking to be more like Jesus, it would be worth knowing the answers to those questions. So first of all, what makes Jesus weep? Like I said, we only have two times in the Gospels that record him weeping. One is the famously brief, Jesus wept. In John 11:35, and that's when his friend Lazarus had died, uh, we learned there that Jesus wept over death and the suffering it brings. And he wept, even knowing, <clears throat> knowing that he was planning on raising Lazarus when he got there, uh, which shows that Jesus does not weep because he despairs. He weeps, I believe, because he identifies with our suffering. And he wept, in essence, because Lazarus's sisters were crying and because death is ugly and because it is inherently sad when somebody dies. Our story today marks the second time that it is recorded that Jesus wept. And this time, he weeps for Jerusalem. The very sight of it brings him to tears. I'll read it again real quick. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your, <clears throat> from your eyes. Excuse me. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone 
upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. That's a pretty desolate picture. And a nasty prediction for Jerusalem. The destruction will be thorough. Every stone will be torn down. It's not just conquering the inhabitants. They will remove the very existence and memory of the city. This was incidentally fulfilled in 70 AD. Not only did the Roman army under Titus besiege Jerusalem, it essentially eradicated the city, including many foreigners who were in town for the Passover celebration at that time that year. Uh, The entire defensive force of some 40,000 was killed. Josephus claimed that uh, a million civilians died as well due to famine, fire, and violence, and that nearly 100,000 were enslaved as a result of that offensive. And what many people don't realize is that Rome also systematically unmade the physical city itself, just as Jesus said, all but a couple of towers that they left to prove what a great city they had conquered. Even the trees were cut down. Josephus claimed it looked like a desert. If you can picture Hiroshima or Nagasaki after the bomb, but picture it done by hand by Roman troops, you'll get a good idea of what it looked like in Rome at this time, or in Jerusalem. It went from the city of God to a stretch of desert. And eventually Rome built a replacement city on the site some years later called Aelia Capitolinus, and they put a temple to Jupiter on the site of the old temple, and it remained a Roman village for about 500 years, and then the Arabs conquered it, and so on and so forth. But the fact is that to this day, The Jerusalem you visit today is not the one that Jesus wept over. In Philly, if you go down to Independence Park, a lot of the buildings that are down there are not the originals. They're based on originals and blueprints we have of the originals. But, like, one of my favorite places to go is City Tavern. It's a faithful copy. They'll take you upstairs and show you, oh, this is the room they celebrated the first 4th of July, right in this room. And, you know, Washington toasted Adams and whatever else happened, you know. Uh, that's not true. I don't think Washington was there. But anyway, the point is is that it's just a replica of the original building. The the old building got torn down. Uh, Today's Jerusalem isn't even really a replica. I I always kind of laugh. You hear these radio commercials, you know, do the footstep of Jesus tours. You know, you can walk where the apostles did, but in Jerusalem, not really. Um, You know, the streets might roughly correspond with where they used to be, but, you know, it's not entirely accurate. But the original Jerusalem has been forgotten by history. It is unmade, forgotten, and conquered, and abandoned. And every drawing in your study Bible has a little footnote somewhere that it's an artist's rendering when they draw out Jerusalem, what it it used to look like, and they have little things they say, this is the proposed location of X, Y, and Z, because we don't really know with some of the stuff. And that is the consequence of events that Jesus weeps over here. All this to emphasize that this is not some spiritual prophecy. Jesus was weeping over something very real and tangible. So what makes Jesus weep? Suffering, shame, death, destruction, desolation, and particularly so when it comes to his people. He weeps to see his people suffer. More than that, he weeps at the thought of their future suffering because this is 30-some years down the road from when he's crying about it. He has such a heart for his people that he cannot think of them hurting without hurting himself. What is more remarkable yet, perhaps, is that he feels such a deep compassion for his people even when their suffering is self-inflicted, even when they are at fault for their own misery, because Jesus makes clear that the coming destruction is the result, at least in part, of Israel's failure to recognize Jesus as their Messiah, 
They did not know the things that make for peace, he says in verse 42. Verse 44, they did not know the time of their visitation. In other words, when God decided to visit them in the person of Christ, they did not recognize him. And without receiving the Prince of Peace, they could not know how to make peace, either with God or with men. And yet, in spite of all that, Jesus has pity and weeps for Jerusalem and its children. So what makes him angry? We have even fewer examples of anger out of Jesus. We sometimes hear scathing words, but physical altercations are not as common with him. Um, I thought of the scene in It's a Wonderful Life when George loses his cool when he comes home to the family and he starts breaking things in the living room and he finally stops and gives a sort of muttered apology to the kids and he asks the son, what did you want to know? And he says, nothing, Daddy. You know, and uh, I imagine the stunned amazement of the disciples. You know, Peter's saying, just give him space, man. He's, you know, just, just back off. You know, so what sets Jesus off? George Bailey lost eight grand, so what's Jesus' excuse? Um... The first thing you'll notice is that Jesus got angry at the abuse of the temple. That's the plainest interpretation of the text. Uh, In verse 46, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. In other words, Jesus is unhappy that the temple is being used as a center of commerce. I often think of that when I see large churches that operate cafes and gift shops. I think, what would Jesus say? I mean, this kind of passage, it should make you think twice about church bake sales. But this was not helped by the fact that they were selling worship-related items, animals for the sacrifice. Uh, Doves are specified in the other Gospels, which is a poor man's sacrifice. So the very cheapest offerings, originally intended for the destitute, are now being hawked by street vendors to those who came to the temple unprepared. Next, you'll notice that Jesus is also angry because of their ignorance of Scripture. Both of the lines that he uses there are lifted from the Old Testament. We have Isaiah 56, 7, or a portion of it, and uh, Jeremiah 7, 11. So Jesus is angry that they don't know their Bibles. Either that or they simply don't take him seriously. And Jesus takes the Bible very seriously. Now, on one hand, that should be a no-brainer. But on the other hand, why should Jesus take the Old Testament so seriously? If he's God... Why keep resorting to referencing some old book? Doesn't he have as much authority as anything written there? And that's the fascinating thing, and this is just a sidebar, but, you know, when Jesus is willing to literally crack a whip to enforce scripture, he does so because the Bible is a coherent whole and because it contains God's revelation of himself over the ages and because God does not change and because the Son and the Father are one in mind and because the Holy Spirit carried the writers of scripture so that this book is his inspired word. It has power, such that even Jesus Christ himself revered it as the revelation of his Father's will. He never resorts to, you know, God told me X and you better believe me. He always points to the word so that we can verify God's will by reading it and that we have no excuse for our ignorance. Any book that Jesus thought was worth reading should probably be on our to-do list, more so than any, you know, anything on the Oprah book list. But there's one more thing that made Jesus angry, and that was the sheer arrogance. It wasn't just the commercializing that took the Bible lightly. The passage in Isaiah 56 is about the nations. In Luke's account, the verse is cut short. But the entire line from verse 7 of Isaiah 56 is, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Which is followed by verse 8. The Lord God 
who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. In other words, the verses Jesus is quoting from emphasize the temple as the international meeting place for all those who seek God's face, including Gentiles. By contrast, many Jews are treating it as a purely tourist destination. It's it's an attraction. So the outer court of the temple, which is the only place the Gentiles are even allowed, is is treated sort of with contempt. They've turned it into a farmer's market where you can do your basic banking. It's like Main Street. They're selling trinkets. They're exchanging foreign currency for temple-approved coins to pay the temple tax. They're charging hefty exchange rates. They're selling cheap sacrifices. And Jerusalem at Passover would be full of people, Jews and Gentiles, all here to visit the temple and take part in the festivities. And many of the Jews are seeing this as a financial opportunity, not a chance to glorify the God of Israel. And I'm sure it was easy for the Jews to feel that they were a rare and special people, were above these visitors and outsiders, because we are, in fact, God's chosen. I think it's easy for any of God's chosen to fall into the trap of thinking that we were chosen because of how awesome we are. Anyone born and raised in church probably feels a similar sense of entitlement at least some of the time, and Jews in Jesus' day must have felt the same way, especially when compared to all the foreigners who were in town. But God is rather emphatic that the Jews were never chosen for their inherent worth. He describes them variously as stiff-necked, stubborn as a heifer, least of all the nations, And it's worth noting also that he chose them out of nothing. I once led a Sunday school in a previous church where we were talking about, I asked a question about Gentiles in the Old Testament whom God had reached out to and saved. And, you know, we talked about Ruth and Rahab and and, and a few other characters, but I suggested Abraham, and I immediately got protests. But the fact is, is that the father of all the Jews is technically a Chaldean that God called out, correct? So the chosen comes from nothing. There's no room for arrogance and entitlement in God's people, and I'm sure this contributed to Jesus' anger at this scene. Although it is worth noting that Luke does clip the end of that verse, and I think that's because he's writing primarily to Gentiles in a post-temple context, and perhaps he didn't want his readers to walk away thinking that the lesson of this story is that, yeah, we were entitled to access the temple, and those Jews were keeping us out. You know, he doesn't want one arrogance to give way to another, So he emphasizes the temple as a house of prayer. He wants his readers to know that prayer and humility are the main point. And that, in other words, he wants the readers to understand that it was God's honor and not theirs that was at stake, that was injured there. So he emphasizes the temple as a place of true worship, because God wants to be worshipped and not trivialized. His angry reaction is also compounded, I would say, by the fact that this temple corruption is part of what caused him to weep while he was still on the road. It's like being sad that you have to punish your kid for something only to go upstairs and find that they're still doing it, you know? Uh, You go from sad to angry really quick, you know? I hate having to spank the kids. I still do it on occasion, but it comes more naturally when you actually catch them in the act of drawing on the walls or hitting each other or whatever they're doing. Um... And this must be kind of how Jesus felt at this moment. And this abuse of the true worship of the living God, it's part of what has Israel on the path to judgment and destruction. Jesus is weeping at the thought of Jerusalem's fate is integrally linked to his anger at her unfaithfulness. His anger and his sorrow have a common cause, similar to how we get angry and sad for our children. 
both are rooted in our love for them. So Jesus' emotions are driven by his love for his people because he doesn't like to see them suffer or sin. I want you also to notice uh, how quickly Jesus dismisses any concerns over his poise and control. It would be tempting reading this to think that he's totally lost it, but instead of breaking down into an emotional mess and leaving the temple to have some alone time, he gets right down to teaching. He chases a bunch of people around with a whip, and that settles down, I like to think he's still holding it, and gets right down into a lecture, like a boss. And it's not just a rant. He has everybody hanging on his words. And all the leaders who want him dead feel helpless because his teaching is solid and the people listen to him. Jesus is completely cool in spite of everything that just happened. He doesn't lose control. He's doing exactly what he meant to do. So now, we have seen what makes Jesus weep and why he gets angry. And I figured it's a good time for introspection at that point. What makes me weep? If I'm entirely honest, not much. Okay, I lied, all right. I, I cry more than my wife does, um, but that's not my fault. She's Irish. Um, certain movies will make me cry. Not Bond movies, although Casino Royale had a moment, and I came close, but I didn't. Um, but for those of you who remember the never-ending story from, from my childhood, you know, when Artex sinks into the swamp, I mean, there a dry eye in the house? I mean, my kids know that one. Don't ask me why I saw Little Women, but I did. And when Claire Danes died, I, I had a moment, you know, I, I did. Um, old Yeller? He was the best dog on Dog in the West. <laughs> Sorry. I cry at funerals, but I think that's fairly natural. I cry in frustration uh, with life because sometimes it's too hard. Uh, things not going right when I'm working on the house or something breaks or, you know, more personal tragedies. I sometimes get the feeling like God is ignoring me or worse, I start to thinking he's antagonizing me and I feel like I'm Job or something. Not really, I've never endured anything close to it, but I tell myself in my mind, you know, I am far more likely to weep over my own suffering than the sufferings of others. And that doesn't mean I don't care about other people's suffering, but it does mean that I don't feel their pain as personally. That is probably normal, but not very good to admit, but I figured I was safe in this room full of sinners. Um, I don't cry over the news, like ever. I often see people on Facebook, thankfully I'm not on Twitter yet, um, but I, I see people use the phrase, I weep for blank, you know, I weep for my country and everything, and I always kind of want to be like, nah, come on. I mean, it, I feel like there should be a basic rule. Unless you're actually shedding tears on the keyboard, you shouldn't be entitled to type the words, I weep for anything. Um, and, and if you are really crying, I kind of feel like, you know, why advertise it? I mean, you don't tweet, hey, I'm having a good cry right now, LOL. I mean, you don't bother with that. I mean... You know, what if Jesus had said on Twitter, you know, I weep for Jerusalem, hashtag 70 AD. I mean, you know, people don't do that. It's weird. But that's just me. See, I am a terrible cynic. Although I cry more than many men I know, I do comparatively little weeping for others, especially when they deserve it. Uh, I am not like Bill Clinton. I do not feel their pain. 
Quite to the contrary, I am well acquainted with schadenfreude. Do you people know what schadenfreude is? Does everybody know that one? No? No? Okay. Schadenfreude is a German word. It's defined as pleasure at the misfortune of others. Leave it to the Germans to feel like we needed a word for that. But don't act like you don't know the feeling. Because the Three Stooges and Tom and Jerry made a whole career out of schadenfreude, okay? And, and you've all laughed, you know. And it's also the lesson of Jonah, so the Bible talks about it too. Jonah sitting on the hill waiting for Nineveh to get what had coming to them, you know. He, he wants their comeuppance, you know. We know that feeling. But if I put it simply, I tend to be very selfish, and so are most of my tears. And that doesn't make all of them bad. It's okay to cry for yourself at times, but there's a whole lot of sad things in this world that don't get me going the way they should if that makes sense. So maybe my priorities are a bit skewed. On that uplifting note, how's my anger looking? Okay, not much better. Uh, I get mad at everything. Uh, I don't cry over spilled milk. I, have the, I do the sensible thing and I get angry. Um, I get mad at things that inconvenience me, insult me, or sometimes things that scare me. Uh, this includes but is not limited to Facebook. Hashtags, they are pound signs, people. Pound signs. <laughs> Scheduling mishaps. Verizon. Comcast. Car troubles. Telemarketers. This election season. The Phillies. City government. State government. The federal government. Crazy neighbors and burglars, especially when they may be one and the same. Kids making me late for stuff. People that come into the market when I'm closing up, watching me clean the slicer and ask me to dirty it again for a quarter pound of cheese. Like, come on, people. All of these have the common thread that they somehow inconvenience me or insult me and my honor. And my pride is rather easily injured, and somebody can probably testify to that in this room, honey. I get angry when something gets in the way of how I think life should be. And sometimes there are real injustices in the mix of what I'm angry at, but ultimately my anger is just as selfish as my tears. It's most passionate when it's most personal. Your anger and your tears can tell you a lot about what you value, and thus they can tell you a lot about what your idols are. Your anger and your sorrow might say a lot about what you worship. I'll let that sink in. You can apply that personally. There is a definite contrast between what makes me angry or sad and what makes Jesus angry or sad. He weeps for his chosen people, and he gets angry when his father is dishonored. I weep when I hurt, and I get angry when I'm dishonored. His emotions come out of his love for the father and his people. Most of mine come from my love for myself. Now, if the ultimate purpose of Scripture is to follow Jesus' example, I've got a big problem. And it was the same problem with the whole WWJD fad in the 90s. And you know who you were, wearing those bracelets at Yo Night. Yeah, I went there. Some of you might remember what Yo Night was back in the day here at New Life. What would Jesus do? I know what Jesus would do, and it has very little relation to what I would do. The premise is unfair. If I were God in the flesh, then WWJD would be a much more useful slogan. 
And if Jesus only came to be a godly example, then I'm in trouble. Because I am not capable of willing myself to feel anger and sorrow when he would. Because my sin is too deeply ingrained. That's how bad I am. I see people suffering, especially when they seem to deserve it, and I have a very hard time getting the waterworks going. I see people dishonoring God, and I'm more likely to shake my head because I'm not surprised. I can't even bring myself to get angry about it. I may stew silently, but I don't always speak out because when anger would be proper, my cynicism takes over. So what is the moral of the story for a guy like me? who can't even begin to imitate Christ and his emotions. I think we need to start by thanking God that Jesus is not set before us primarily as a moral example to follow, but rather Jesus is presented as the Savior who came to save you where you're at. I am not in the place of Jesus in this story. I'm in the place of Jerusalem. I'm the one who profanes the house of God. I'm the cynical, selfish person heading toward a destruction of my own making. I'm heading towards a judgment that is richly deserved. And Jesus comes and weeps for me. Not because I'm innocent or because I didn't have it coming, but because he has compassion for the lost. His tears are shed out of his love for us. And his anger appears because he loves his father. Now this would seem to present a problem, wouldn't it? Because we, his people, are the ones he weeps for, but we are also the ones who make him angry. Is there any possible way to harmonize his love for us and his love for his father? If we only had some mediator to make that happen, if only we had an advocate who could make that right, You see, Jesus has much more cause to be cynical than I do. He knows how bad I really am. But he takes no pleasure in our condemnation. Schadenfreude is utterly foreign to him. The cross... I'll get that later. The cross is the elephant in the room throughout this entire last week of Jesus' ministry. And the reason for all the emotional turmoil is that God's law and God's mercy are drawing ever closer to each other. And the tension seems unbearable. But they will meet and intersect in glorious climax on Calvary, just a few short days away. And that is where we are called to meet Christ, not as our moral example, but as our crucified Savior and our great High Priest whose love for both the Father and for us is equally unfathomable. So know the one who makes for peace, and know the hour of his visitation. Let me pray. Father, we are not much like Jesus. In our natural state, we are quite the opposite. Lord, I don't cry when he would. I do not get angry when he would. I am a mess, as are we all. Lord, I pray that we would walk away from this text, Lord, just with humility to know that. And not a resolution to do better, but Lord, help us to just come to the foot of the cross, Lord, lamenting our own sin. 
Thank you that you came and that you cry for us, Lord, even though we don't deserve it. Thank you for coming to die. We pray these things in Jesus' name.